Mark chapter 10. I want to share with you a few stories of some people, and I want you to listen for a common thread throughout. What do these stories have in common? Their names are Roger and Lynn. They were for many years missionaries in Mozambique, and then uh, they came to know of a place just off the coast. It's called Mozambique Island. Uh, Mozambique Island, a population of about 15,000 people and generations without an evangelical witness. So out of a sense of God's call on their life, they left a fruitful and productive ministry in mainland Mozambique and they relocated to Mozambique Island. Mozambique Island has for a very, very, very long time had two distinct regions. Northern region is far more affluent. Uh, The southern region is not. And uh, that southern region historically has been called Straw Town uh, because of what the homes were made out of for generation after generation. Uh, Roger and Lynn White missionaries, uh, when they moved to Mozambique Island, they moved to Straw Town. And as far as anyone could tell, the first white people to live in that area for about 200 years. Uh, Within the first year, their home was repeatedly vandalized in really grotesque ways. They suffered uh, theft after theft after theft until after a time they established trust trust and connection with community leaders and were afforded some protection uh, by their neighbors. Uh, When you're a missionary going to Mozambique Island where there's no evangelical witness and has not been one for hundreds of years, you don't just set up a church and have Sunday services. And so they began a hotel and a restaurant and used that as a way to do life-on-life discipleship and evangelism with their employees Uh, while at the same time providing uh, a benefit to the local community. And so they have multiple employees, all of whom daily are being fed the Word of God while also being trained, uh, being educated, being trained in job skills, being taught fiscal responsibility and given hope for a future. All the while, Roger and Lynn's two sons are college students in the U.S. and are moving on with their lives as adulthood requires. Uh, And in the meantime, Roger and Lynn maintained their place in Strawtown on Mozambique Island. Their names are Rob and Elena. Uh, they are both police officers. Uh, Elena has, ever since she was a little girl, uh, done a lot of sewing and quilting. And several years ago, a local police officer was killed in the line of duty. And so Elena received permission from the police officer's widow to take some of his uniforms and some of his work shirts And it turned them into a quilt for the family. And out of that was born a ministry to the families of fallen police officers. Sadly, the demand is far greater than they can meet. But Elena, along with her husband Rob, who also uh, learned under Elena how to contribute to this quilting work, um, they both care for families in this way, making blankets, quilts, Uh, even pillows out of the uniforms and the work shirts of fallen officers. Her name is Donna Wright, owned her house and the house next door in her small town, and she committed in her heart that whoever rented the house next door from her, she was going to annihilate with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
lost people moved in, saved people moved out. And day after day, she lived for the sake of her neighbors. Uh, Today, she's 89 years old in assisted living, and she still carries a burden for her neighbors. Six days a week, you'll find her in the lobby area of her assisted living complex, leading a Bible story as lost people move in and then save people move on. What do these people have in common? What's the one defining characteristic that makes them noteworthy, even admirable? These men and women have given their lives to serve. They are servants to people who are hurting, people who are vulnerable, people who are forgotten, people who no one else is thinking about. They are servants in the name of Jesus Christ. Their commitment to follow Jesus in service to other people has taken them around the world and even all the way next door, they're servants. And I would argue that these people I've told you about are not extraordinary. They're not elite. They are standard issue Christians who have simply taken seriously Jesus' call to serve. It's a call that comes to you and I today as well. Are you a follower of Jesus who serves others sacrificially? Do you go through your normal day other-minded in the way that Christ has called us to think? It's not a natural way to live. Self-centeredness is natural. But other-mindedness, that's supernatural. In Mark chapter 10, the passage we're going to study today, servanthood is the item on deck. This is the focal point of our passage this morning. And Jesus makes clear in what we're studying today that His expectation is that His followers would serve others in the same way He has served us. So my purpose today is to persuade you to live a life of radical service to other people. This way of living is the very foundation of the Christian life. It's the natural result of those who have experienced the amazing love of Christ. And to convince you to live this way, to woo you to this way of servanthood, I want to show you, highlight for you, three aspects of the servant life from this incredible passage of Scripture. If you were with us last week, our focus was on how Jesus' words change our thinking, in particular about salvation. Today, Jesus' words affect our living. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. 
They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you and I are going to serve, if we are going to be slaves of all, what's it going to look like? I want to show you three aspects of the servant life here in our passage. The outcome today as we leave here committed to a life that looks more like the sacrificial life of Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, here's the first thing we've got to know about the servant life. First, it requires the right motivation, and that motivation is Christ's love for us at the cross. If you and I are going to serve people, if we're going to be other-minded, our motivation for this is our experience of Christ's love for us at the cross. So, you'll never believe how Mark starts this section of Scripture. He starts it with a geographical marker. We never get lost when we're with Mark. He always tells us where we are or where we're going. We've always got these little markers on the map. And so he tells us in verse 32 that they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Who are the they? Well, the they is Jesus. He's at the front of the procession. And certainly his disciples, they're there with him. And also other travelers, other pilgrims who are on their way to Jerusalem. It's close to holiday season, and uh, here are many pilgrims following Jesus on the way there. Now here's a little tip for you when it comes to Bible reading and making sense of some interesting details here and there. Mark tells us in verse 32 that they were on their way up to Jerusalem. When you and I use directional language like I'm going up or I'm going down, we're talking about north and south, right? You go down to the Cape, you go up to Manchester, right? That's how our minds think about it. But here, when Mark says they're going up to Jerusalem, he's not describing them as going north. In fact, they're not going north. Rather, what he's talking about is a change in elevation. You see, Jerusalem as a city sits high on these hills. And if you're going to go to Jerusalem, you are going to go up to the holy city. And if you leave Jerusalem, you're going to go down from the holy city. So there's your little Bible reading tip of the day. When they go up, they're changing elevation here uh, as it relates to the city of Jerusalem. So they're on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the way. And Mark describes the emotions, the reactions of the people who are following behind Jesus. He tells us that the disciples are astonished and then others with them are afraid. And why is this? Why are they astonished 
and afraid. Well, Mark doesn't tell us explicitly why, but I think we can gather some clues from the context that help us understand the thinking of the crowds behind Jesus on this day. You see, they're carrying with them knowledge that Jesus has accepted the claim that He is the Messiah. Previously, He had asked people to keep this quiet, but in chapter 8, He has a conversation with His disciples. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus accepts that. He's talking now publicly, though not broadly until we get to the triumphal entry in chapter 11, but he's talking now broadly and openly about his role as the Messiah. So in the mind of the disciples and in the mind of the crowd following Jesus that day, the Messiah is on his march into Jerusalem, and when he gets there, they're thinking there will be a showdown with the Roman authorities. Because in their minds and their expectations, that's how the Messiah works. The Messiah establishes His kingdom and His throne not through His death, but rather through the death of the enemy. He's going to come in and clean house once and for all. So there's, in the crowd that's following Jesus, there's this sense of foreboding. There's this concern. There's war on the horizon. And they're right, in a sense, it's just not the kind of war they're expecting. You see, defeating Rome, that's no big thing. Jesus is going to do far more than defeat Rome, though. He's going to take on our sin, and He's going to do it at the cross. Verse 33, Jesus pulls His disciples aside to explain to them what's going on. Look at it in your Bible. Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem. Ah, we know what that means. We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles who will mock Him and spit on Him, flog Him and kill Him. Three days later, He will rise. This is the third time Jesus has predicted His death and resurrection to His disciples. Uh, the other places, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. And now here, the difference in this prediction compared to the previous two is there's a lot more detail in this one. The general gist is the same from prediction to prediction to prediction, but here Jesus gets far more specific in the transaction that will happen. He'll be handed over and then the type of suffering that He will endure. And since Jesus predicts His death and resurrection... You and I can be sure that the events that follow, his arrest, handing over to authorities, all that he suffers, those things are not tragic or unexpected. They are precisely part of God's purpose and plan for the Messiah and the salvation he'll accomplish. Here we have this incredible picture of the sovereignty of God at play. Although the disciples can't process what they're told, what they've been told repeatedly now. They have no frame of reference for it, no category to put it in. Even though they don't understand, Jesus is so direct and the sovereignty of God is in full display. God is orchestrating everything related to Christ's death and resurrection. What's more, He's orchestrated everything related to your salvation. Jesus is going to Jerusalem because you and I, we are dead in our sin. And His death is the only way we can be saved. That's it. So when we begin to understand the depths of our sin, the horror of our sin, 
and the intentionality with which Jesus goes to Jerusalem and goes to the cross, then we begin to understand how truly amazing grace is, how truly incredible the love of God is for sinners like us. We've experienced such incredible mercy and grace. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been brought back to life. You weren't dying in your sin. You were dead in your sin with no help of self-resuscitation. Someone from outside has to act in your favor. And that's what God has done. He comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, dies in our place on the cross, raised again three days later, And that gives us this hope of eternal life. We've experienced such incredible grace and mercy from Him. And we can't possibly hoard that. We can't take, take, take from Jesus and keep it to ourselves and have our lives not be affected. Or take from Jesus and then expect that we would also take from others. That Jesus would lay down His life for us and then others will lay down their lives for me as well. That's not the Christian way. Those who have received mercy must give mercy. Those who have been loved must love. Those have, who have received grace must give grace. Those who have been forgiven must also forgive. This is how this works in God's economy. Our experience in the love and grace of Jesus compels us to love in a sacrificial way. Why would you orient your life for the sake of other people? Why would you live to serve others? You would do that because that's exactly how Jesus Christ has loved you. There's a different way of motivating people in other realms of life. Yesterday I had a fun time watching college football. I would recommend that to you sometimes. There's other football than just NFL football. There's college football, and it's fun too. And uh, college football coaches, I think they motivate this way a lot of the time. They always take their guys and, and they put the end in mind. We're we're going for the championship this year. We're going we're to work hard now so we can get glory later on. So come on, we're going to practice hard in the summer. We're going to play hard in the fall. And then we'll hoist the trophy. Just imagine it with me. We're going to be all in here because of what we will get later. But that's not how the Christian mind works. And that's not how the Christian life is motivated. Our motivation is not in what we get out of service. Rather, our motivation is what we have been given through the service of Christ. If I'm thinking I'm going to serve someone so I get something out of it later, what is that? What can I get that Christ has not already given me in full and in abundance? There's nothing left for me to receive from anyone else. I've been given everything, grace, mercy, love, life, eternity, in abundance, in security, forever. So I've got it all. Now it's time for me to give. That's how the Christian is motivated to serve. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our experience of Christ's love at the cross, compels us to get out of our pews, out of our tiny worlds, and to live for the sake of the other. But there's a conflict. Here's something else you've got to know about our servanthood. We need the right motivation, but we, we face a conflict. And that conflict is what? It's our selfish egos. And that comes to play here in our story. So Jesus predicts his death to the disciples. And uh, tells them, I'm going to die. I'll rise again. And after sharing this, James and John approach him with this question. Seems to be in secret. And just on a side note, 
in all three places where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, the disciples re- respond with stupidity. <laughs> they, they can't process, and the words that come out of their mouths next are just utter failures in all three scenes. So James and John, uh, the brothers, they pull Jesus aside and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. Verse 37, they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, I couldn't confirm this with any of the commentaries or other resources I looked at uh, for this Sunday, but I think I can state with confidence that this is the first ever recorded game of I Call That Chair. Did you ever play this game or your kids played this game? Look, I grew up with three brothers, and I call that fill-in-the-blank was second language to us. If we didn't call things, we would not only have no place to sit, we would have no food to eat. We would have starved to death. So this value system uh, emerged in our home, and if you wanted to sit, like you wanted to sit in the front seat and not crawl in the back, you say, I call front seat. Or if you had been sitting someplace and you had to go watching TV, you had to go to the fridge or the bathroom, you had to call that chair. If you didn't call that chair, it was open season to whoever got into it first. And, and you would call the chair, you would leave, a brother would get in the chair, and then you would threaten that brother, I called that chair! I get it when I come back, or I'm telling dad. That's, that's how the game was played. The disciples play, call that chair. Jesus, can we sit at your right and your left in your glory? How does that question strike you? It feels a little icky doesn't it? We can give James and John a little bit of credit here. Uh, In their favor is the fact that they believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and that he will be victorious, he will have glory, and he will have thrones to give. So this is a good thing. This This goes to James and John's credit. Their request actually contains a great deal of faith because it claims the promise of victory, and especially since Jesus has reminded them of his impending death. However, the request is completely tone deaf in light of what Jesus has just said about his coming death and resurrection. Their request is a selfish request, and God does not answer selfish requests in this way. And so look at how Jesus answers in verse 38. He says, You don't know what you're asking. You have no idea the path to those chairs. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? This is uh, seemingly confusing language for us. We may not understand these figures of speech right of way. Drink and baptized, or cup and baptized. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's using two parallel images to describe his suffering and death. The cup and the baptism are metaphors of his suffering and death. So the cup is used metaphorically throughout the Bible. It comes up uh, time and time again. Sometimes the cup is a cup of blessing, But more often than not, it's a cup of wrath or divine judgment. So take, for example, Psalm 75, verse 8. It says this, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. So cup, can you drink the cup? Jesus is asking them, can you endure this suffering that I'm about to undertake? 
And when he uses the word baptism, he's referring to the same thing. When you and I think of baptism, it's hard for us to disassociate it from this tank and the ceremony that's wrapped around it. That's not what Jesus is referring to. In in this instance, baptism, uh, it, it means immersion, to be plunged into the divine wrath of God for the sake of the salvation of sinners. So Jesus is going to be swallowed up in this deluge of wrath and divine judgment. Can you drink the cup? He's saying, can you take this sin and wrath? Can you take the baptism? Again, the judgment of God uh, that I'm going to undertake. Can you take these things? These are rhetorical questions Jesus is asking James and John. The implied answer is, no, we cannot drink. We cannot endure the baptism. But James and John, out of their consistent ignorance, answer Jesus and say, we can. We can drink that cup. We can take that baptism. It just shows how little they truly understand of what lies before Jesus and how suffering is so necessary to the glory that He will achieve. So Jesus answers the brothers in verse 39. He says, yeah, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant these places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. So Jesus tells the brothers, you are going to suffer. He, he knows the road ahead of them after his resurrection and ascension. But those positions of honor and greatness are not his to give. In fact, you don't get those seats by calling them in a secret conversation away from the other disciples. The way you get there, it's appointed by God. And in God's kingdom, the first are last, and the last are first. Now, I love verse 41 like I love a root canal. Look at it with me. (laughs) When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Can you imagine the scene? The pettiness of this moment. The bickering the accusations. I have to believe Jesus rolled his eyes at least a few times. Most likely at my life. But here Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection and the whole thing just devolves into this silly argument over who's great, who's going to sit where, who gets to have secret conversations with Jesus. It's just utter nonsense. I think it's worth noting how alone Jesus is in this moment. And here he is with the twelve. But he's just, he's by himself. It's interesting that faithfulness and loneliness are common travel mates on our journeys with Christ. And also, so is buffoonery like what we see here in the disciples. At the core of these men is selfish ambition and vain conceit. They completely miss the application of the cross because of their jostling for position. When it comes to living a life of servanthood, sacrificial servanthood in the way of Jesus Christ, our egos, our self-centeredness is perhaps our greatest obstacle. It's easy for us to live for ourselves. Easy for us to be concerned about what we get out of a thing or how something will benefit us. We we do this cost comparison and we think, all right, if I do this, the payoff has to be this. It's easy for us 
to say no to servanthood when it impinges upon our comfort or our agendas. The second great commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as long as it benefits yourself. Is that what it says? No. What I meant to say was love your neighbor as long as you get the credit you're due in the end. I I think I read that wrong again. I apologize. What I meant to say was love yourself and demand that your neighbor loves you as well. Is that? I don't think that's it either. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And self-centeredness is a destroyer always. Self-centeredness destroys marriages and it destroys careers. And it destroys churches. But other-mindedness, that's a life changer. It's even a world changer. And so you and I must not let the self get in the way of our glad obedience to Jesus Christ. This is why you and I must, on a daily basis, battle our sins, strive for holiness, have the Word of God in front of us that we could hear His voice and we could live the life He's called us to. Many people are charitable. We live in an area where a lot of people um, have very charity-driven pursuits. We're going to care for animals, care for the environment, care for the town, a lot of things like that. But what Jesus has called us to is something different. Rather than just having activities that pad a resume or that, that jive with the things we're passionate about, rather what He tells us to do is to put aside ourselves, deny yourself, take up your cross, Follow me. Ego always gets in the way of obedience to Jesus Christ. And so, brother and sister, the closer you are to Jesus Christ, the more you move away from your sin, the greater your capacity to serve will be. But the more and more that we keep ourselves in the driver's seat and we keep me in the spotlight, the less and less we will be able to reciprocate the love and service that we've benefited from Jesus Christ. We've got to check our egos. We've got to take me off the table and live in radical other-mindedness for the sake of the people around us. So we've got right motivation. That motivation is I've been saved from my sin by a gracious Savior. I'm going to live in the same way. We know our big conflict, the thing that gets in the way, our great hurdle is ourselves. Now, how do we know to live this way? What's our model? Third thing you've got to know about the servant life. Our model is our crucified Savior. How do we know what it looks like to serve? We know it because of what we've seen in the life of Jesus Christ. So the disciples are busy bickering with each other about who gets seats of honor perhaps the ethics of secret requests of Jesus and all of that. And then Jesus calls them together again. He shuts it down. And He points out that they are actually acting in this moment, not like His followers, but like worldly power brokers. Look at what He says in verse 42. He says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So Jesus takes time to compare worldly power with Christian power. 
He starts by saying that worldly rulers, they utilize power and coercion. We've got these two phrases in verse 42, that rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's one phrase. And the other is they exercise authority. Now, in our English translation, the phrase exercise authority doesn't really come with a punch. We're all people under authority. And when authorities exercise that authority, like police officers or government leaders or whatever, we're under that, we understand it. But these two phrases have decidedly negative connotations that that don't really pack the same punch in English. He's talking about the manipulation of power, coercion, self-centeredness for their own preservation and their own advancement. The disciples were making the mistake in this moment of following the wrong example. Instead of modeling themselves after Jesus, they're following the example of worldly rulers who love position and authority. While that's the world's way of leadership, Jesus' followers operate under a totally different set of values. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Isn't it interesting here in verse 43 and 44, Jesus doesn't give us a command. He doesn't say, this is what you have to do. He just simply says, this is how it is. There's not an option here. It is fundamental to the Christian life that we are servants, slaves of all. No command, no option, just this is Christianity 101. And this is especially true of those who would be great in the kingdom of God. The Christian life is marked by this radical other-mindedness. Servant, slave of all. Christian people are focused on meeting the needs of others rather than controlling others to meet my needs or to achieve my wants and my desires. There's, in fact, no other way to be Christian than to be a servant and a slave of all. So Jesus turns the world's entire understanding of power on its head. God's pattern in Scripture is that a person must first be a servant before God promotes him or her to be a ruler or a leader. That's the way it was for Joseph, and that's the way it was for Moses, and for Joshua, and for David, for Timothy, and even for Jesus Christ himself. So then Jesus applies this paradox of leadership, of greatness to himself. Look at verse 45. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to, ser- to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And the ultimate act of servant leadership is the Son of Man's sacrificial death as a ransom payment for the sins of the world. Jesus says, look, this is why I came. I, I didn't come to be served. I didn't, come, uh, or I, I didn't come so that I, with, with glory and power and chariots and angels and gold and worldly titles. This is Christmas language right here. I came low as a baby, born in abject poverty to powerless, anonymous parents, anonymous to the world. He came as a servant and laid his life down for many. Many writers would say that this verse, chapter 10, verse 45, 
is the very linchpin of Mark's gospel. This is how we understand the gospel in Mark. By this very verse, Jesus gives the total flavor of what it is to be his follower and what it is for him to accomplish his messianic mission in this one verse. Isn't it interesting that there isn't a culture or a period of time in human history in which this teaching has been irrelevant? Never been a time or a place where the lessons of servanthood and being a slave of all weren't applicable. It makes sense in the first century the same as it makes sense in the 21st century. Power brokers generally have always and everywhere worked for their own benefit. Christ followers have always and everywhere laid down their lives for the sake of others. That's how God wants you to live your life. God wants you to live for others. And as much as you achieve positions of leadership or influence or power, He still wants you to live for others. This servanthood, this mindset of slave to all is not temporary on our ascension to influence. It is what marks the Christian from new birth to eternal life all the way through. The church that's going to follow Jesus in radical servanthood Our mindset has to be servant, slave of all. Let me give you a couple of hiccups in this endeavor. A couple of temptations that we have to be aware of. As we apply this to our particular context, let me give you what I see as a couple of temptations we have to be really careful of in order for us to serve the way Jesus has called us to. First is the temptation to join the chorus of the outrage of the day. The world around us is at war with itself. And every week there's an invitation from some media outlet here or something there, an invitation to you and I to join in the outrage. And then our lives become a platform for stating our positions, our policies, our opinions, who we oppose, who we are for. And it can be easy, I think, for Christians and for churches to assume that that voice is the voice we are to carry. When we do that, when we take up with the outrage of the day, whatever side we land on, what happens then is we become ferociously tribal And we can't love the person on the other side. Jesus has called us to be a slave of all. Not our voting block, but of all. So brother and sister, tread lightly into those outrageous waters to make sure that they do not inhibit your love for people and your willingness to serve. Another temptation is this. Another temptation is the temptation to serve, or excuse me, to settle for superficiality. And social media is an easy target here. I'm, I'm not entirely anti-social media. I'm growing more and more suspicious of it <laughs> with every passing day, uh, questioning its value in my own life. Uh, but here's where we have to be so very careful. Uh, A profile is not a person. A thumbs up is not a hug. A selfie is not a self. Uh, 
we read headlines that people put up about their lives in an attempt to be connected. And, and I think a lot of times we just stop at the headline. So it can be easy for us to settle for a superficial connection or just a, a comment praying for you or something like that. I'm not saying those comments are empty or pointless. I'm, I'm not judging those things in any way. I'm just saying it's not the same as looking someone in the eye, as sitting with someone in grief, as enjoying a cup of coffee together, as praying and reading Scripture together. I would encourage you to do this. Consider curbing your social media diet for a while. And instead, in those places where you formerly were online, looking, reading the headlines, looking at the pictures, thinking, oh man, their life's great and mine's rotten, rather than that, hey, pick up the phone and call one of those people and schedule some time with them. Don't let social media drive your interaction, but rather let the call of Christ for you to serve and be a slave of all lead you to create margin in your life to build true and sincere relationships with people not superficial, not plastic, but life-on-life connections. And it may mean you lose track of a lot of people on social media, but who cares what your third-grade friend's doing today anyways? What matters is what your neighbor's doing today and your coworker, and your family member that you need to be closer to. Those things are important. Your life is currently structured to give you the results you're getting. So when it comes to servanthood, we, we might say, ah, I'm so busy, I got this, all right. So, friend, it may take you reorienting aspects of your life to create some margin, to create some room for you to be able to say yes when the opportunity arises. So you've got to do a careful evaluation of your life and look and see, where can I serve? How can I lay down my life? How can I fulfill this expectation to be a slave of all? If my model is Jesus Christ, my crucified Savior, who didn't come to be served but to serve, I want to follow in His steps. So Jesus teaches us three vital lessons about servanthood this morning. First, we're motivated by our experience of Christ's love. Second, our egos are enormous hurdles. Third, we are sent just as He is sent. Radical other-mindedness is the disciples' life. Do you remember where Jesus told James and John, He told those brothers that they would indeed drink the cup, they would indeed take the baptism? You remember that? Guess what? They did. Their service to others cost them everything. We know that John suffers tremendously in his life, imprisoned, beaten, and eventually exiled, all because he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. As for James, his brother, he's one of the first martyrs uh, from among the apostles. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tell us that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. James and John drank the cup. They were servants, slaves of all. And they laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. They learned this lesson well. So well that later in life, John would sit down and write this in a letter. 1 John 3.16 This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So in a world that prizes power and volume and accumulation, may we live according to the words of Jesus. Let us take up our low positions and change the world through gospel 
self-proclaiming servanthood. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, I'm grateful for this instruction today. In, in, the, in James and John's silly question and in the pettiness of the disciples' argument, I see a reflection of myself. Because I love Cody Busby. And Lord God, you know, uh, you know always my fight against my ego. Lord God, this is certainly true of so many of us in here. So this morning, thank you for the conviction you bring that presses us towards repentance and holiness. I ask today, God, that you would, through your word, have awakened faith in someone here, someone who assumed that their relationship with you was merit-based, based on religious deeds or good intentions, Lord, awaken them to the futility of that thinking that they would trust entirely in the one who died and rose again for their salvation. And for us as believers in, as a church, let us be marked by an unwavering commitment to live the way you have saved us to live. Let it be said of our families, let it be said of South Shore Baptist Church that we are servants, slaves of all, as we carry the gospel to the corners of the earth. Thank you for loving us in this way and for empowering us to follow. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.